As I have already mentioned, the text for our sermon this morning is Psalm 129. Psalm 129, if you would please turn there in your Bibles. And while you're turning there, I just want to point out uh, something about the title here of this psalm. In fact, it's a title that we see in this whole portion of the Psalter, uh, from Psalms 120 through 134, uh, uh, where we read that it is a song of ascents or degrees. The common understanding is that this is in reference to the Jewish custom of the people singing together from this portion of the Psalter as they mounted up or ascended up the hill to the city of Jerusalem for their annual feasts. So again, Psalm 129, I'll be reading the psalm in its entirety. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us read now the holy word of God. A song of ascents. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. My plowers plowed on my back, or rather the plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turn back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Neither let those who pass by them say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Let us pray together. <clears throat> o blessed Lord God, eternal one and heavenly Father, we too do call once again upon your most blessed and holy name, asking that you would be with us, that you may feed us from your holy word, that these, your very own words, would be drilled down into our minds and into our hearts. Lord, we pray that, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, and indeed may Israel proclaim it. And note the repetition here. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. As we said earlier, this psalm opens rather abruptly. It's as if the psalmist is suddenly caught in the middle of some deep meditation. Or perhaps he speaks out to us, from a feeling of agitation. 
Many a time they have afflicted me, or greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say. But is this literally in respect to Israel, that is, Jacob, who was persecuted by his elder brother Esau? Or rather, should we consider the name here Israel in a more collective sense? For at the same time that the psalmist speaks as an individual, many a time they have afflicted me, he also speaks as a body of people. Let Israel now say. So, what is meant here more specifically by the name Israel? Well, we see in a parallel fashion in verse 5 that Israel is called Zion. And so we understand that this is God's covenant people, the people of God, and I think by a fair extension, we would say also the church of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, what does it mean when we read, from my youth? Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, especially if we take this more in a collective sense. Actually, one of the great principles of interpretation of the scripture is that scripture interprets scripture. And we actually read something in Hosea chapter 2, Verse 15 that I think applies here. There in Hosea we read, She that is Israel shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So there is the scripture interprets scripture. It's indicating that the days of her youth, the youth of Israel, is when she came out of bondage under the Egyptians, what we know and understand is the great exodus of God's people. But now, I just wanted to give you a little bit of the sense of these opening words, but immediately we should ask ourselves, what, however, is the psalmist's main point? What's the main point here? This is his point. That even though Israel has often been persecuted, even from his childhood, so to speak, yet nonetheless they, that is the wicked, have not prevailed against me. That is the voice of God's people. They have not prevailed against me. Now, we don't often have the summary of an entire psalm and in just its few opening verses Yet these words, I believe, express the import of the entire psalm. And we see this same message in the Gospels, don't we? For example, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we read the words of the Lord Jesus when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall what? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The wicked should not prevail over God's covenant people, the church of Jesus Christ. That is the main point. Now, having said this, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying that God's people will not suffer or be afflicted or be persecuted, which is obvious not only from Scripture, but also from our own experience. Indeed, we seem... <clears throat> we seem to see a, a growing antagonism against the church in our own day, don't we? 
I thought it was interesting that a, a Jewish speaker on the radio recently asked the question, who is the most hated group in America today? And he asked, for which group is it politically correct to hate? And surprisingly, as a Jewish man, he did not say the Jews. He actually said Christians. He said that Christians are the most hated group in America today. And so, very briefly, I want to take a look at a few current events to illustrate this point. And for greater relevance, I will limit these examples to our own Western world. In January of this year, the Finnish Evangelical Lutheran minister, Johanna Pohoyula, was placed on trial for the hate crime of authorizing the publication of a pamphlet which presented the biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality. Reverend Pohoyula was fined and then acquitted in March, but the prosecution, was, at least at that time, was considering to make an appeal to the appellate court. And last summer in Canada, at least 20 churches were vandalized or burned down to the ground. A week later, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau commented on this anti-church crime wave and simply said, and I quote, that's not the way to go. In the past year or more, Canadian pastors such as James Coates, Arthur Pulowski, and Tim Stevens have been arrested and imprisoned for preaching and holding church services in Canada. One of these pastors, Arthur Pulowski, after he was released from jail, spoke at an outdoor prayer service in Portland, Oregon. So now we're also speaking about an event that took place in America. But this church service was disrupted by members of Antifa who proceeded to spray mace in the face of Pastor Pulowski. And during this attack, one of the members of Antifa cried out to the Christian group, Where is your God now? (laughs) Isn't that remarkable? It's as if they were quoting from the book of Psalms. As we already sang this morning from Psalm 115, Why should the nations or the heathens say, Where is their God? And we have in a very similar fashion in Psalm 42, we read, As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? What is more, the Antifa members threw flash bombs into the midst of these gathering Christians who included young children. According to one eyewitness, a flash bomb was thrown into a group of children who ranged in age from four months to ten years old. And reportedly, the police did little to protect these Christians from the violent members of Antifa. What's my point? My point is, and I think we need to be aware of this, brothers and sisters, that we are currently witnessing a kind of persecution against the church in North America such as never been seen before. And this is taking place not only in Finland or Canada, but as we said, even in America, the home of the free and the brave. Now, the scripture, the word of God, always tells us plainly the way things are. And the Lord has also given us his word to comfort and to encourage us. Listen again to our text here from Psalm 129, 
when the psalmist says that the wicked have not prevailed against me. And listen to the words of the Lord Jesus as we read from the Gospel of John in the 16th chapter and the 33rd verse. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Take heart, my brothers and sisters. Be encouraged by the word of God here this morning. Are you or someone dear to you suffering for the sake of Christ? then be assured and comforted for the word of God is teaching us here that the church of Jesus Christ will be delivered from her enemies and you will see the Lord in his righteousness avenging our and his foes. I want you to remember that. But look with me for just a moment at the structure of this little psalm. Psalm 129. The first part of the psalm is about the way that God's covenant people are afflicted. And the second part is about the way of the Lord's vengeance against those who persecute the church. These two parts will also serve as the two heads for my message this morning. And right in the middle of the psalm is a clear point of transition between these two parts. It comes in the form of these words in verse 4. The Lord, or Jehovah, is righteous. And I'll speak to that later on. But what I would like to do this morning is first talk about the judgments of the Lord that we see in the latter part of the psalm before we consider the suffering of his people in the first part. So I'm taking this somewhat in a reverse order. But please follow along with me in your Bibles, beginning at the fourth verse to the end of the psalm. And we read in the second part of that fourth verse, he has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. And actually, I'm going to defer that as well, because I want to show you how I believe it's connected to the verse that immediately precedes it, in verse 3. But as we continue in the psalm, in verse 5 we read, let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. The idea here is that as the wicked retreat and defeat, defeat from the church of Jesus Christ, they will be confused. They will be ashamed. They will be disappointed. Like Haman of old that we read of in the book of Esther. Their desire against the righteous will not be satisfied. And then we come to one of the, the colorful metaphors found in this psalm in verses 6 through 8. We read about what may be thought of as a kind of harvest of the wicked. Because the language that follows speaks in terms of, of a harvest. In verse 6, we read that the wicked are compared to the grass on the housetops. And the grass is presented in a fashion as if it was like a crop to be harvested. Now, we see the same metaphor used in other parts of the scripture, not just here in this psalm. For example, if you want to make note of it, but I won't take the time to turn to these places, we also see this metaphor in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 27, also 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 26 
where we read about the inhabitants of fortified cities, that they shall become as the grass on the housetops, which is scorched before it is grown up. Now, as you probably know, the houses in Judea typically had flat roofs, flat rooftops, and they were often covered with dirt where grass could easily grow and for a short time flourish. But since the soil on the rooftop is very shallow, the green grass would wither, and then it would be scorched by the heat of the sun. Does this remind you of the Lord's parable of the four soils? Do you remember the second kind of soil that we read of in Matthew chapter 13? I'm reading from verses 5 and 6. And I quote, They, in other words, the seed, did not have much soil and immediately sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. My brothers and sisters, in our psalm, this is a picture that the Lord is giving us of those who persecute us as the church of Jesus Christ. And although the enemies of Christ in his church may appear to be vigorous and flourishing, yet in due time they will be weakened and will shrivel up. And though the persecution may be of the cruelest kind, it will not last long, like the withering grass on top of a flat roof. Then we read in verse 7, speaking of the grass, that the reaper does not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms, or literally his bosom, the sheaves of the crop. Now, we're talking about withered and scorched grass on rooftops. So do you see, this is a picture of absurdity. It's absurd. Imagine harvesting withered grass like a crop from a flat rooftop. There will not be enough to fill the reaper's hand. And then perhaps even more absurd, imagine the binder's arms filled with sheaves of a few blades of withered grass. That's the picture here before us. What does this mean? It means that under the blistering heat of the Lord's righteous judgment, the persecutors of the church will shrink in number and become powerless. And instead of realizing their wicked designs, all their labor will prove futile. My brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged by the word of the Lord here. Those who hate the church of Jesus Christ will not prevail against her. That means even you and me, if we are in Christ. The psalm closes in verse 8 with yet another picture related to the harvest. We read, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This, was, this actually reflects a custom that we read of even in, in the book of Ruth to bless harvesters in their labor. For example, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, we read, And he, that is Boaz, said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And then they answered, The Lord bless you. And that was the custom. But now as we look at this eighth verse in our psalm, 
what do we read exactly in our text? We read, neither let those who pass by bless them. That's what it says. Don't make this blessing according to the custom against or in favor of the harvesters, those who are wicked. In other words, this is a prayer. This is in the form of a prayer. Neither let it be that no one would pronounce a blessing on the works of the wicked. Nobody, not even a passerby, so to speak, as he sees the harvesters in the field. That, that's the picture. And I also want to draw your attention to the fact that this is not the only place in this little psalm where we see this language of prayer. Consider again what we already looked at. In verse 5, it says, Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame, and so on. And verse 6, Let them be as the grass on the rooftops, and so on. And now again in verse 8, Neither let those who pass them by say the blessing of the Lord, and so on. Do you see that all these expressions are in the form of prayer? These are actually petitions that are being offered up to the Lord. And so what does this teach us here? It teaches, as the Lord Jesus Christ in his mediatorial dominion over all the nations, it is proper, as he reigns over us, it is proper for us to pray against the church's enemies. That's what it's teaching us here. And yes, we should first pray that they may be converted. Maybe there's a soul of Tarsus among them. We don't know. Saul, who, as you know, was once a great persecutor of the church and then later became the Apostle Paul. Yet, if they will not repent, we should pray that the Lord would bring down his righteous judgment upon them and that they would not rule over us. As we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Indeed, God considers it just, and remember verse 4, it says, the Lord is righteous. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And this is speaking directly to our text. Again, the opening of this psalm. Many a time they have afflicted me. They have afflicted me. And so we come now to our second heading, that part of our psalm which gives a, a more of a, a specificity to the affliction that we suffer as God's people. And we find here another metaphor in the psalm, and perhaps this one's even more vivid and colorful than the last one. We read in the third verse, The plowers plowed on my back, they made their furrows long. Um, I like how the King James put it, puts it here. It sounds very poetical. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This metaphor is also like the last one used in other places of Scripture. Isn't that interesting? So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 23, we read that, that the tormentors say, Lie down so that we can cross over, put down your back as the ground and like the street, street, 
for those to walk on it. And this metaphor is intentionally graphic, isn't it? The plowers plowed up my back. They made their furrows long. They do seem almost poetical, don't they? And I think that we should not shy away from this imagery. Initially, we may think of these words in a literal sense, which is a natural first reading. As if a man may lie flat on the ground, like we just read in Isaiah, lie down so that we can cross over, put down your back is the grounds. And then a tormentor with a team of oxen in his plow plows across our backs. But now, of course, this is not to be taken literally. This is a figurative expression. It's a metaphor. Yet this metaphor is rich. And I think its imagery is inseparably tied to the meaning here. But what should be our interpretation of this metaphor? Well, as is commonly understood, the farmer, when he plows in the ground, he is merciless with the soil isn't he? He has no sympathy for the earth as he cuts and tears and digs it up. And if he sees a clot of dirt, he breaks it up. And when he runs into a stone, he removes it from the field, or if it's too big, he'll plow around it. But he is determined to be thorough and to finish his job well. And so his plow digs deep, deep into the soil, so that he can be confident when he plants his seed. My friends, the word of God here is telling you and me <laughs> that this is a picture of persecution. How cruel and thorough are the wicked in tormenting the saints. They persecute the church with all of their strength and with all of their cunning. And what is more, they take great delight in doing so. How, how the wicked hate Zion. They hate us. They hate you and me. And their hatred is not only evil, it's, it's irrational. And it's not only irrational, you could say, it's unnatural. How they love to tear up the soil of our earthy backs. Do you remember when the Lord God first made man? He shaped his body from the dust of the earth. And then we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and man became a living creature. And so if you think of it in that respect, in a certain sense, we do have earthy backs because we were made from the dust of the earth. But what does this teach us? Man was created indeed as a glorious creature like no other creatures that he made. We were made in God's own divine image. You know, one of the great uh, tragedies of the fall is that we fell from such a height, a height of nobility, and being made in the very <clears throat> image of God. 
Yet at the same time, as we alluded to that creation account, we are but vessels of clay. And as we read in Genesis chapter 3, we are made from the dust, and to the dust we shall return. And while our tormentors run their plows across our backs, there are lessons that we can learn. For God is sovereign in these providences. We learn about our own frailty, don't we? When we are under persecution. We learn about the loneliness of our own condition. And we must pray in the midst of our suffering and affliction that the Lord would use this persecution in our lives to humble us, to humble us. For we must remember that our backs are made merely from the dust of the earth. Now we come to a part that I I promised to address in the fourth verse, where we read that he has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. Uh, In the Hebrew, these words can be rendered as simply to cut, to cut the cords, or to cut them in two, two pieces, or as we have it in the New King James, to hack it into pieces. But what exactly do the cords refer to? Now, we may immediately think of the words from the second psalm. We read in the third verse, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And I think it's very natural to think of that text in this connection. Yet, as I found from commentators in my study, it may be more natural to see this expression as connected to the metaphor which immediately precedes it. That is, when we read that the plowers plow upon our backs and the Lord cuts the cords, we see that he is cutting the reins which tie the oxen to the plow. And so the idea is that the plowers will no longer be able to plow upon our backs because the Lord has cut the reins. And again, this is the Lord who is righteous. As we read in verse 4, he has cut the cords of the wicked. But let us return again to the second part of this metaphor in the third verse, where we read, they made their furrows long. They made their furrows long. How deep and long are these furrows of persecution? Yet though our enemies mean it for evil, hear how we may use these furrows for good. As the Puritan John Trapp puts it, God's people do sow the seed of prayer in the long furrows which those plowers made on our backs. Isn't that wonderful? So we should plant, so to speak, the seed of prayer into those, those gashes, those, those furrows of affliction and persecution upon our backs. We should sow the seed of prayer in the midst of our affliction. And in a similar way, the Bible commentator Matthew Henry suggests 
that these furrows are used by the Lord. So not only can we use them for prayer, but also the Lord uses them so that he may sow the seeds of grace. Isn't that wonderful? Oftentimes, we we have a keener sense of the presence of the Lord in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering. And so, the Lord uses our affliction for, for he himself to plant the seeds, for he himself to plant seeds of grace, which we are so needful of as sinners. And there's something more I want you to consider about these furrows. <clears throat> these long and deep furrows may allude in particular, and this is not just my own idea, I, I came across it from the commentators, it may allude to stripes on the back which results from whipping. You know, when someone is whipped, there's these red lines on their back left from the cords of the whips. And so in this way, this metaphor they have plowed upon our backs, may remind us of the suffering of Christ. Because we read in the Gospels, for example, Matthew chapter 27, that when he had scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. And also in John, in chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, the whips that the Romans typically used would often have fragments of sharp stone tied to the end of the cores of the whip. So the idea is that not only would there be these red stripes on the back, but with each blow, these fragments of bone would rip, actually rip up the flesh of the back of the one who's being whipped. And so again... It makes us think of this plow digging deep and tearing up the soil of our earthy backs. But also, we find that the gospel of Jesus Christ is here. In Isaiah chapter 50, we read, and I think this is the voice of the Messiah, I gave my back to those who struck me. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 5, we read, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Isn't that the gospel? With the stripes from the scourging, the Lord, by that means, the Lord has healed us. It's quite an intriguing juxtaposition. His wounds is for our healing. And his chastisement is what brings us peace. Because in the suffering of Christ, he takes on the suffering that was due to us. So we no longer are in debt to the Lord because the wrath against us has been paid, has been poured out on his son. So, do we see Jesus in this psalm, Psalm 129? Well, another consideration, as I've said in the beginning, the text presents the speaker both as an individual, yet at the same time, he identifies himself collectively as Zion. Many times they have afflicted me, let Israel now say. 
So here we have one body of people, yet they are being identified as one person. Does that sound familiar? The church is the body of Christ, made up of many members, many people, but with one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus identifies himself with his people. I mentioned uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. But do you remember the words that the Lord used in confronting Saul as as Saul was on his way uh, to Damascus. What does Jesus say to him? Does he say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, he doesn't say that. Does Jesus say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting my people? No, he didn't say that, even though that's what Saul was doing. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not as if Saul was taken up into heaven and he was beating on Jesus. Jesus identifies himself with his people, with the church. Why are you persecuting me? Is what Jesus said. We are members of Christ's body. Now, We don't know, of course, what affliction may come to us personally in our own lives. Nobody knows that. And when you are in the midst of suffering, it may seem interminable. And indeed, our suffering may extend over a large part of our lives. And it may be that the Lord will call us to lay down our lives for him. We don't know. The question for us is, are you, am I, willing to follow the Lord Jesus wherever he may lead us? That's the question that we should address, not whether or not it's going to happen. And remember the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 10, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. As we close, I would like to give you an illustration from church history. Like the Canadian ministers we spoke of, the French Protestant Marie Duron was imprisoned for her faith. And though she did not die in prison like so many other Huguenots in her day, she was locked up in prison for 38 years for her faith. And remarkably, after she was released from prison, she still lived for another eight years. But Marie Durand led a hard life. Whatever we may suffer for the Lord in this life, it will likely, I say likely, not compared to what she endured. In 1730, at the age of 19, Marie was arrested by the authority of a letter stamped with the king's seal. She was a newlywed. And as she and her husband, Matthew Serre, were settling into her father's home, the dragoons, that is, the king's soldiers, broke in. 
Only two years earlier, her father, Etienne Durand, at the age of 72, was arrested and imprisoned in a fort in Brascou. And in a letter to his daughter, Marie, Etienne wrote, The more I suffer, the more I reflect on God. Doesn't that remind you what we are just speaking about? How the Lord sows seeds of grace into the furrows of our backs? And after their arrest, the newlyweds, Marie and Matthew, would never see each other again in this life. Marie's husband was sent to the same prison where her father, Etienne, was incarcerated. And Marie was sent to a prison for Huguenot women called La Tour de Constance, or the Tower of Constance. But what was their crime? What did Marie, her husband, and her father all do worthy of this imprisonment and this treatment? Well, you see, Marie had a brother. His name was Pierre Durand, and he was a Huguenot pastor. And he preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to thousands. That was their crime. They were members of the family of the outlawed preacher. The king's men could not find the Huguenot pastor, who quite understandably was always on the run. So in a cruel retribution, they persecuted all of his family. Two years after Marie's arrest, the king's men finally caught up with her brother He was arrested, condemned, and hung on the gallows. And though they finally got their man, his loved ones, his sister, his father, his sister's husband, were not released from prison. After her brother's death, Marie remained at the Tower of Constance for another 36 years. One well-known artifact from Marie's time there at the tower is a word that she carved in one of the stones which surrounds an opening in the center of the prison floor. And the word that she wrote was registe, which is an old French word which means resist. Now you can go there and still see this word etched in the stone. In fact, my family and I visited that site during our time in France. And though the word resist was engraved by a weak hand, it was written on a durable stone. Our faith is like that, isn't it? Even if Christ's enemies kill our frail bodies, they cannot extinguish the enduring faith of the church triumphant. Marie Durand suffered for most of her life for the sake of her Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Yet in the end, they did not take her life, and as a member of the body of Christ, she was victorious over her enemies. So we learn from this little psalm, Psalm 129, that no matter how much we may suffer for Christ, and no matter how severely we are persecuted, In the end, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail, and the wicked shall not. And we also learn from this little psalm 
that because Jehovah is righteous, he will execute his justice on all of his and our enemies. So let us comfort one another with these words of hope, a certain hope from our text. Yet they have not prevailed against me. This is the voice of the church. This is the voice of Christ. Let us pray together. O blessed eternal one, heavenly Father, we give you a praise and thanks that you remain with us even in the midst of the most difficult times. And though we may see clouds on the horizon and we don't know the future state of things, whether it be in, in our families, in our, in our communities, in our, in our nation, yet we know, O oh Lord, that Jesus is reigning and he will continue to reign until he's put all of his enemies at his feet. We praise you, O Lord, for such a Savior and such a divine King, uh, the divine man, the God-man, who is our King, reigning even now over the church and the nations. We pray, O Lord, that you would be now with us by your Spirit for the rest of this worship service and throughout this Christian Sabbath day. For we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us turn now to our final psalm selection, which comes from Psalm 110. If you would please take up your psalters and turn to Psalm 110, section A. While there may be some psalms which scholars or theologians question as to whether or not they are messianic, that is referring to Christ, this one unmistakably does. Psalm 110, The Lord has spoken to my Lord, at my right hand take your seat until I make your enemies into a footstool for your feet. And uh, I think it's uh, worthwhile at this point just to bring up how that the Lord Jesus himself quoted from the psalm. We read in Matthew chapter 22. Let me just read this just short passage. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. You know, they're always trying to trump him, and he asked, now he asks them a question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in, in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Here, Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 110. And he goes on to say, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And then we read, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. And uh, they couldn't answer the question. But can we answer the question given the revelation that's been given to us in the scriptures of the New Testament? So when we read, the Lord said to my Lord, okay, my Lord, who's the speaker? David. Who's David's Lord? 
the Messiah. So when Jesus, well, and then it starts when the Lord, so you have two referred to as the Lord. And if you look in your English translations, the first Lord is all in capital letters, which is just a convention. But it means, but it's, it's not without meaning. It means that the word underlying there is the word which is comparable to the Hebrew uh, Jehovah. This is the Lord God. So the Father says to my Lord Jesus, so the Father says to Jesus, sit at my right hand. And isn't that exactly what happened when Jesus rose from the dead and sinned? We were told in another place of scripture that he, he sat down, and the theologians call it the session of Christ. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father, and then we read, till I make your enemies your footstool. So we can understand these words even though the Pharisees could not. And the only reason we can understand is because it's been revealed to us. So, And this is a marvelous, glorious text of the victory of the Lord Jesus, that he ascended on heaven, he was exalted, and then he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, from which he reigns. And he, he, he reigned from that time onward even today and until the great and final last day of judgment.